Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler, Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. And in fact, since the last episode aired, a glowing review has indeed come through to the show. And technically, it's not a five-star review because it was written directly to rawattitudepodcast.gmail.com, but I feel like this is basically a five-star review in spirit. And it comes from Pam, just Pam. Yes, that's how she identifies herself. Pam, just Pam. And by the way, shame on all of you if you didn't think that the Raw Attitude Podcast had female fans, because we clearly do, you damn sexists. But anyway, Pam, just Pam, wrote a lengthy review after listening to the five-and-a-half-hour fully-loaded mega episode with Sal. And because she took the time to write it, I'm going to take the time to read it. So here we go. Quote, Bravo! Once again, your impeccable research, incredible knowledge, and humor came through with flying colors, as did your obvious respect for Raw in the Attitude Era. It was all there in the five-plus hours of listening pleasure from Triple H's announcing, It's about me, I can relate, and the revelation of Undertaker's Bone Street crew as nothing more than a group of friends playing dominoes, and here I had visions of a bubbling cauldron filled with unspeakable content surrounded by a secret society of grave robbers or some such thing. We move on to Big Show raising Kane, pun cleverly intended, over his head and tossing him over the ropes onto the floor. We've got Jim Ross's strategic pauses. This man brings the phrase team player to another level, getting his ass kicked for the good of the WWE. I might add, I also enjoy hearing about the creative signage waving unabashedly by the camera whores in the audience. In closing, I'd like to agree with Terry Runnels that being a sex slave is a difficult job. Oh, and by the way, I have a strange craving for pasta in a can. That's a reference to the Rocks getting chefy with it commercials. And thanks to Sal's Boston accent, a cold Sam Adams beer. Henry, you rock. End quote. I mean, wow, that's an excellent, well-written review right there. It's going to be tough to top that one, folks, but I invite you all to give it a try. So a big tip of the cap to Pam, just Pam, for taking the time to express her love of this fine podcast. I hope she continues to enjoy it, and I hope you all do too. Oh, and before we begin, I have a quick correction from the prior episode as well. I had said that I didn't think we had heard Kane use his voice box since the lead-up to King of the Ring 98 when he said he would set himself on fire if he didn't win the title. Well, I was wrong. Actually, I was very wrong, because I completely forgot that Kane actually used the voice box on three other occasions more recently than that. In October of 1998, The Undertaker cut his promo where he admitted that it was actually he who set fire to his parents' funeral home, killing them in the process— to which Kane responded by showing up at the top of the ramp, pulling out the voice box, and challenging Taker to a casket match, which obviously is the proper reaction when your brother admits to murdering your parents. 
And then in December of 98, when Kane was being manipulated into doing the corporation's bidding, Vince McMahon forced Kane to thank him, which Kane used the voice box to do. And one month after that, Shane McMahon also forced Kane into an apology, also via voice box. So yes, there have actually been quite a few instances of Kane using it, but last week was the first time he had done it in about six months, so it had been a while, and I completely forgot. Still, though, I'm not above correcting myself when I get something wrong, so I guess all I can really say is... I apologize. And on that note, let's get into the show. It is Monday, August 2nd, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from the Schottenstein Center in Columbus, Ohio, now called the... Value City Arena in the present day, located on the campus of Ohio State University. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include five episodes of Raw, just one episode of SmackDown, and two episodes of Nitro. And by the way, one of those episodes of Raw was the one from November 23rd, 1998, which is the show where Shawn Michaels was named the new commissioner of the WWF and The Undertaker tried to embalm Stone Cold Steve Austin. Fun times. And so we begin by going straight into the opening credits, the pyro, and... Wait, what the hell? We do not get the obligatory scanning of the crowd tonight, because instead of that, the camera focuses on the Acolytes, since your reigning WWF Tag Team Champions Farouk and Bradshaw are standing at the top of the ramp while the pyro display is happening. However, since it is my duty to report on the offensive signs in the audience, here is a quick list of some which you can see throughout the broadcast. My dad likes Hogan. Wanna go to bed, Rock? Professional puppy groomer, 1-800-I-Heart-Boobs. China farted. Underwear taker. Is Nitro still on? No, you suck it. Preparation HHH. Teddy Long sucks. Kane is my dad. I like Slim Jims. Wanted meaningful overnight relationship with the guy's phone number on the sign. I heart feet. Got MILF, which I'm only pointing out because the movie American Pie, which popularized the term MILF, had just come out only three weeks before this episode of Raw, so the term was actually still brand new. And finally, Happy B-Day HHH, which, to this fan's credit, is actually true. This episode was taped on July 27th, 1999, which was, in fact, Triple H's 30th birthday. So happy birthday to the new number one contender for the WWF title. By the way, I would also be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that you can clearly see people in the crowd holding up foam asses in honor of Billy Gunn. So you know how they sold those Stone Cold Steve Austin foam middle fingers? Well, apparently now they also sell foam asses in honor of Mr. Ass. Do you want to shove your hand up Billy Gunn's rectum? Now you can with the new foam ass. I'm guessing this probably wasn't a big seller, but if you had it, please be sure to tweet me at RawAttitudePod. But anyway, the Acolytes proceed to walk down the ramp, and while they do that, Jim Ross informs us of something interesting which happened last night on Sunday Night Heat. The new alliance of The Undertaker and The Big Show claimed they were going to send the entire WWF straight to hell, at which point they were interrupted by the aforementioned Acolytes, who challenged them to a match. So basically, out of nowhere, with no explanation, two guys who were aligned with The Undertaker for the past seven months are now calling him out for... reasons? 
I mean, Christ, they're still calling themselves the Acolytes, a word that literally means followers because they worship the Undertaker and the Ministry of Darkness, just so we're clear. So anyway, we did indeed get Taker and Big Show versus the Acolytes on Heat last night, and the match ended when the Undertaker and Big Show laid out both men with a steel chair, so the Acolytes won via disqualification. But now, let's go back to tonight on Raw, where the Acolytes have a microphone, and they proceed to call out Taker and Big Show, but instead they get the Big Shot Hardcore Holly. And yet again, Holly decides that he wants to go one versus two against the tag team champions, and yet again, he gets his ass kicked. This time, Holly ends up falling victim to a double spine buster, a clothesline from hell, a dominator, and not one, but two spike power bombs. And then... That's the end of the segment. If ever you needed proof that the WWF has literally zero concern about people switching over to Nitro, they just started Raw with the Acolytes and Hardcore Holly. Ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. And from there, we then get a recap of the Edge-Gangrel feud from the past few weeks. In case you need a reminder, at Fully Loaded, Gangrel cost Edge the Intercontinental title, and then the next night on Raw, Gangrel pulled Christian out of harm's way during a match with the Acolytes, leaving Edge to fend for himself. And then last night on Heat, after Edge won his match against Meat, we got a shot of Gangrel standing in the crowd, with Christian standing by his side. And we then go to an interview from... Earlier tonight, where Terry Taylor catches up with Edge, and he says that he's hurt and heartbroken over the fact that Christian has aligned with Gangrel, but in addition to those feelings, he's also angry. So pretty much, he's running a gamut of emotions. I have it on good authority, he was also hungry, because he skipped lunch that day, so I'm not sure why he left that out. But anyway, that Edge interview provides us with a fitting segue, because we then go back into the arena where it is time for a bloodbath match, Edge versus Gangrel. And in case you're wondering about the rules of a bloodbath match, there is a literal bucket of blood in the aisle sitting at ringside, so presumably the winner is the man who first pours the blood onto his opponent. Actually, pardon me, Jim Ross is quick to tell us that it is, and I'm quoting here, simulated blood, because I guess they don't want people to think that they slaughtered a pig purely for the purpose of this match or something. And I have to say though, this match was actually pretty enjoyable. Most of it was contested inside the ring with a couple spots that were kind of similar to a ladder match. So, for example, instead of one guy trying to stop the other from climbing a ladder, Edge or Gangrel would grab the other guy to prevent him from exiting the ring and going over toward the blood. That type of thing. At one point, though, Gangrel went and grabbed a steel chair, but then he went into the ring to use it, and Edge hit him with a spinning heel kick, knocking the chair back into Gangrel's face, and fittingly, that kick ended up bloodying Gangrel right above his right eye. And from there, we then got another unique spot where Edge got a running start and tried to hit Gangrel with a spear, but Gangrel picked up the chair and covered his torso in it, so Edge went face first into the chair. Pretty clever. And Gangrel then set Edge up for his Impaler DDT, so let's take a listen to what happens next. Gangrel's face is split open. Is it over his eye or under? I can't tell, but Gangrel hasn't slowed down. That's a big time. DDT by Gangrel. Now nothing can stop him. Gang- We're going to see the bloodbath. Oh, yeah. Gangrel looks like a casualty of war here. There it goes. He's got that. Nothing's going to stop him now. Get this. There's that balance. Oh, oh, What's up? I don't. There's some sort of ritualistic thing. That, I can't see it. I can't see anything over there. Wait a minute. What, what is what, this? There's. Oh, there's Chris. 
And this match is over. Wait a minute. The first man to receive the blood bath loses. Wait a minute. Christian would not get... What? Well, Christian and Edge now embracing. The brothers are... Maybe they... Maybe some sort of a... So after hitting Edge with an Impaler DDT, Gangrel rolled outside the ring and grabbed the bucket of simulated blood, but then the lights went out and the Brood's music hit. And yes, when they came back on, we saw that Gangrel was down on the ground covered in blood with Christian standing over him. Christian then entered the ring where he proceeded to hug his brother Edge. So yes, it appears as though Christian's alliance with Gangrel was actually a ruse this entire time. And fittingly, Jerry Lawler put the cap on this segment by saying that, indeed, blood is thicker than water. I should also note that this match got almost eight minutes of television time, which is certainly a rarity for two mid-carders during an Attitude Era episode of Raw. And just to repeat, I think they really made the most of it here because it was very entertaining, despite the goofy match stipulation. So kudos to both men, and I suppose we'll see where this feud goes from here. And so we go to a commercial break, but when we come back, I'm going to mention something which has been edited out from Peacock. On the original broadcast, you would have seen the United States Coast Guard sponsor the Rescue of the Week, and that rescue was Jim Ross singing goodbye to Vince McMahon last week on Raw. Let me repeat that. Your Rescue of the Week was a commentator singing. Now that I think about it, maybe it's for the best that they edited that part out. But anyway, from there, we go back into the arena where Vince's son, Shane McMahon, is heading to the ring, and he grabs a microphone. Now, let me just say, I usually enjoy Shane's promos, but this one goes on for almost eight minutes, which has to be a record for him. So before I join his promo in progress, I'm going to skip ahead and give you a quick synopsis of what he says. He was watching at home last week when his father, Vince McMahon, said his goodbyes, and he thought Vince deserved a better send-off than the fans mocking him with, Na 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 na, oh hell yeah, goodbye. And he says that because Jim Ross helped Stone Cold sing that song, JR will have some payback coming to him. But okay, now let's skip ahead a little bit and join the promo, already in progress, to see what Shane has to say. You see, without Vincent K. McMahon, there would be no Stone Cold Steve Austin. Boy, that's right. There would be no rock. Be no JR there either. would be no Undertaker, no Big Show, no Triple H, no China, no Kane, no XPAC, no Road Dog, no Mr. Ass, and the list continues to go on and on. Hell, without Vincent K. McMahon, there would not even be Ted Turner's WCW wrestling. <laughs> well, I know that's right. <laughs> Nor their entire roster, many of which Vince created a long, long time ago. Long time ago. Years. So we are all indebted to Vincent K. McMahon. So what's going to happen now? What's going to happen now that the head of the corporation has been severed? Good question. What is going to happen? You better shut up. Look at him looking at you. Could be chaos here. Could be martial law. Hey, are, no. you, are you starting this chant again, JR? No, I'm not. Look at the look on Shane's face. Look at We're going to let this entire volcano of chaos erupt, and let's just find out what happens. 
Because you see, in the meantime, I've been discussing with Triple H at length, mind you, and Triple H has guaranteed me that at SummerSlam, it will be Stone Cold Steve Austin himself that will jump out of his own body and watch as Triple H pins Stone Cold shoulders to the mat. One, two, three. And then Stone Cold will continue that out-of-body experience as he watches Triple H leave this very ring at SummerSlam, the new World Wrestling Federation champion. Yes, that'll be a great out-of-body experience. And you all know how big guarantees are in my family, and I am very confident that Triple H will deliver on his. Uh-oh. Well, we'll see at SummerSlam, won't we? Now, as it relates to the corporate ministry, the entire corporate ministry is now free to do whatever they want to whomever they want until I deem it necessary to bring everybody back together. I'm focusing all of my attention on one individual and one individual only, and that is you, Test. Uh-oh. Here we go. You know, Test, I know you're back there. I know that you can hear me, you big jacked-up scumbag. And I guess you haven't heard my warning. Let me make it perfectly clear to you, Test. You stay away from my sister. Right. Tell him. Well, I'll tell you what, it's very personal. There's no doubt about that. Wait a second. There's Test right there. Oh, no. There's Test right there. Damn, Shane. This is maybe I'm about to pick up right here, King. Shano, Shano, Shano. I told you once to stay out of our business, but you didn't want to listen. Our business. So now I'm making you and those three former Gap employees my business. You talking about the posse? Yeah. It started last week with fat ass Pete Gas, and it's gonna keep going through Rodney, Joey Abs, until it's just me and you. Uh oh. And after that, Shano, all the problems are gonna be gone. Because Stephanie is gonna be an only child. Well, it probably isn't in my business, but in my opinion, Shane should stay out of his little sister Stephanie's business, King. He's still trying to protect his little sister. So as you heard there, Shane has been talking to the birthday boy, Triple H, and Hunter has assured him that he will defeat Stone Cold Steve Austin for the title at SummerSlam. And as for the corporate ministry, Shane says they are now all free to go their separate ways until he chooses to bring them all back together again. Well, funny thing about that, it never happens. In fact, if you go to the Wikipedia page for the corporate ministry, it actually lists this very episode of Raw as the end point for the faction. No more corporation, no more ministry, no more corporate ministry. It's actually pretty historic if you think about it, since the corporation was the dominant faction in the company from about November of 98 to March of 99, and the ministry was certainly a force to be reckoned with too, with The Undertaker getting about a one-month reign with the WWF title. So yes, we must bid farewell to not one, not two, but three heel factions all in the same night. And, might I add, in perhaps the most boring way imaginable. Well, that's over. Now here's Tess. Yeesh. 
But yes, before Shane can wrap up, he gets interrupted by Test, the man who is currently dating his sister. And yet again, I say, if you ever wanted proof that the WWF has realized that the ratings war is basically over, we get a Test promo. And clearly, it's not exactly his strong suit because it almost sounds like they had to go back and dub in his line at the end there about Shane being an only child. I could be wrong, but it certainly sounded that way. And I also had to chuckle at the end there about how Jerry Lawler just flat out called Test, quote, a horrible wrestler. I don't think he meant it in the sense that Test is shit in the ring. I think he was saying it's horrible that Stephanie is dating a wrestler, but I suppose it's open to interpretation. So there you go. Last week, Test jumped Pete Gass backstage, and he's vowing to also take out Rodney and Joey Abs as well until he finally gets his hands on Shane. Will that end up happening? I suppose we'll have to wait and see. And again, I have to remind you, so far this Shane-Test angle has not been good, but it's leading to some very good stuff at SummerSlam. Really, I promise, it's actually good. And from there, we cut backstage where we see the road dog Jesse James walking alongside Kane. And remember that last week, Kane's tag team partner, X-Pac, was hospitalized by The Undertaker and The Big Show. So it looks like road dog is filling in for him this week. Although we can clearly see that the two of them aren't exactly on the same page because Road Dog is asking Kane if he's understanding anything that he's saying to him and he's not getting much of a response. Perhaps this team is doomed from the start. And after a quick commercial break, we get a countdown to the millennium. At this point, we're down to 168 hours and 26 minutes, which means it expires right around the 10 o'clock hour one week from tonight. Oh yes, folks, it's happening next week. Whatever the Millennium Countdown is leading to, we'll all find out together on Monday, August 9th, 1999. I'm certainly looking forward to covering it on the next episode. And then we cut to a bathroom somewhere in the arena where Al Snow is now holding that chihuahua he randomly found last week, which we are now told he has named Pepper. Apparently the dog is telling him to flush head down the toilet, but she won't fit, and instead it just ends up giving head's hair a swirly. And you know, every week that there's an Al Snow segment on Raw, I keep saying to myself, surely these can't get any dumber, and somehow, every week, I'm proven wrong. It's almost actually impressive. And from there, we go into the arena for our next match, the aforementioned team of Kane and the road dog Jesse James, versus The Undertaker and The Big Show, who are accompanied by Paul Bearer. And I have to mention that Taker and Big Show already have their own theme song and a Titantron video to go with it, even though they literally just agreed to team up with each other yesterday. Remember, Raw was live on Monday last week, but this episode was taped the day after on a Tuesday, so the production team must have been working overtime to get all that squared away. And personally, I think Jim Johnston kind of mailed in this theme song for them. It sounds a little bit too generic for my liking, but I'll play about a minute of it for you here, and you can judge for yourself.
Not Jim Johnston's finest hour, in my humble opinion, but feel free to tweet me at RawAttitudePod if you disagree. Anyway, as for the match itself, we get off to a hot start, and we get something I don't believe I've ever seen before. Instead of Kane doing his usual slow walk down the ramp, he actually sprints into the ring to try and go after Taker and Big Show. I mean, seriously, can you picture Kane running to the ring instead of slowly sauntering? It kind of caught me by surprise, actually. And we then get a fun spot to kick off the match as Kane and Road Dog team up to double clothesline Big Show over the top rope and down to the floor, and then they do the same to The Undertaker. And fittingly, we get a big pop from the crowd, certainly the biggest one of the night so far. But from there, as you might expect, the majority of the match consisted of Taker and Big Show working over Road Dog. That is, until Road Dog managed to hit Big Show with a low blow behind referee Mike Kyoto's back. Show then tagged out to Taker, so Road Dog also proceeded to hit him with a low blow behind Kyoto's back. And yes, they may be seven-foot-tall monsters, but clearly, their genitalia is incredibly vulnerable. And from there, Road Dog made the hot tag to Kane, who proceeded to clean house. And once again, the crowd went absolutely crazy. These Ohio State students clearly love themselves some Kane here in the summer of 1999. But at this point, Road Dog made a mistake. He went outside the ring and grabbed a steel chair to try and neutralize the big show, but show responded by merely punching the chair right back into Road Dog's face. Meanwhile, back in the ring, Kane got distracted by what was going on, so Show dropped him neck-first onto the top rope, which then enabled The Undertaker to pick his brother up for a tombstone. He nailed Kane with it, he made the arms-folded cover, Kyoto made the count, and yes, your winners of the match are The Undertaker and The Big Show. And then after the match, The Big Show bounced off the ropes and nailed Kane with a splash for good measure, and at that point... Your WWF Tag Team Champions, the Acolytes, reemerged from backstage, seemingly ready to fight Taker and Big Show again. But before they could make it down the ramp, their nemesis, Hardcore Holly, snuck up from behind and hit both of them in the knee with a baseball bat, as though he were working on behalf of Tanya Harding. Holly then walked down to ringside and yelled to Taker and Big Show that he's tired of having to save their sorry asses, and his patience is wearing thin with them. Big Show then asked him, What are you doing? To which Holly responded, you know exactly what I'm doing. So interestingly, even though the Big Show has aligned himself with The Undertaker and vowed to destroy the entire WWF, it appears as though he's still on somewhat friendly terms with hardcore Holly of all people. Honestly, I feel like this probably counts as the biggest push of Bob Holly's entire career, which is certainly saying something. But clearly the takeaway here is that The Undertaker and The Big Show are living up to their promise of bringing Armageddon to the World Wrestling Federation. Is there anyone who can possibly stop them? Honestly, I actually don't know the answer to that. I assume someone's going to beat them at some point, but hell if I remember who it is, so stay tuned. And from there, we cut backstage where we see the arrival of The Rock, who has an assistant following him and carrying his bag. An arena employee then asks to shake his hand, to which Rock replies, high fives only, and when the guy puts his hand up, Rock motions as though he's going to backhand him. Rock then takes his bag from his assistant and asks him if he wants a tip, to which Rock then replies, wear a condom. But then he actually does pull out a wad of cash, and he throws it on the ground, and when the guy goes to pick up the money, Rock shoves the dude right down to the floor and calls him a piece of trash. Ladies and gentlemen, your number two babyface in the entire company. But this actually leads into some footage of The Rock attending a baseball game yesterday in Pittsburgh between the hometown Pittsburgh Pirates and the visiting Florida Marlins. 
We're told that Rock threw out the ceremonial first pitch, but unfortunately they didn't show that part, which leads me to believe it must have been a pretty shitty pitch. It looked like a fun time, though. Rock was signing autographs, and he pretended he was going to hit the mascot, the Pirate Parrot, and considering the fact that the Pirates end up finishing this season with a record of 78 wins and 83 losses, I'm guessing this was probably a highlight of their season. And so we go to a commercial break, and if you were watching this show back in 1999, you would have seen an ad for WWF Attitude, the company's newest video game. I would play the commercial for you here, but it's literally just gameplay footage with Thorn in Your Eye playing in the background. In case you were wondering, though, it'll be available on PlayStation this week, then on Nintendo 64 by the end of August, and then on Sega Dreamcast in early November, just in case you really want to feel like you're back in 1999. And when we return from break, Jim Ross tells us that next week, your reigning governor of Minnesota, Jesse the Body Ventura, will be live on Monday Night Raw. Yes, that's right. It'll be his first appearance on WWF television in roughly nine years. Hey, maybe that's who the Millennium Countdown was leading up to this entire time. Uh, We should have seen the signs, fans. We should have seen the signs. And from there, we actually kick into footage from Fully Loaded, showing the final two and a half minutes of the Rock Triple H match. And I guess they must be running short on ideas for angles this week, so fuck it, just show the end of a match that already happened. And as a reminder, Triple H beat The Rock in that match thanks to substantial interference from China and Billy Gunn. And speaking of those two, we then go back into the arena where China and Mr. Ass are heading to the ring, And strangely, China is wearing what looks like a black cowboy hat this week for some reason. Perhaps she's trying to show solidarity with Billy by channeling his former tag team with his brother Bart. That'd be my guess. But anyway, Billy Gunn has a mic, so let's take a listen to what he has to say. Finally, the 1999 King of the Ring and the world's greatest athlete has come here tonight to talk about ass. Imagine that. (laughs) Let's hear it. He's an authority on it. And one in particular. Because at SummerSlam, it's Mr. Ass, the premier, the primo, the perfect ass, versus the people's ass. Oh, the rock! We call it the people's ass! She's smiling! And you know who I'm talking about. The rock. Now we got it. Popularity is off the page these days, I'll tell you that. Because my ass is everything he wishes his was. Beautiful, (laughs) elegant, and well manicured. Well manicured? You don't believe me? Well, I've got proof. You see, earlier today, I caught the rock stepping out of the shower, and I took a picture of the people's ass. What? So the millions and millions of the rock's fans could check it out. You can't do that. We're going to see rock naked? Is it it on the tape? Oh, my gosh! Oh, Lord. (laughs) It is the rock's ass! I've seen it before, Jerry. That's it. Oh, look at the sailor. It looks like cottage cheese. That that is hideous. that's the people's ass. He covers it up with those tights. Are you sure? Yeah, if you tell the rock to haul ass, you have to make two trips. Look at that. Oh my. Now, you can cheer that 
can kiss my royal ass. <laughs> I'm a nice man. Can you believe that? I know I can't. Point I'm well made. Mr. Ash came out here and showed the world the rock. Look out. Look who's here, King. Huh? It's a rock. Have you got your tights on? The rock has come back to Columbus. Ohio State University. Badass Billy Gunn, you think you impressed The Rock by going out there and putting the pretty picture up on the Titan Tron? Well, the entire world knows that that's not the great one. But The Rock says he's going to let the cat out of the bag and he's going to let the truth be told. For that is video footage, not of The Rock, but of your fat ass mama. Ooh, man. What? And The Rock says if he ever catches both you jabronis together, he's going to take one can of Diet Coke. He's going to take one feminine napkin for you. What? And he's going to take both of those items, turn them sideways, and stick them straight up both your candy asses. What? Now, badass, you run your mouth about SummerSlam. Well, here's the situation. The Rock says this. If The Rock hits you, He'll kill you. If he misses, the wind behind the punch will give you pneumonia and you'll die anyway, so the choice is yours, Jabroni. Oh, boy, he's got the big mouth. Rock's laying a smack down here tonight. Almost as big so, as Mr. Fast. Ass, as you stand in the middle of the people's ring with drops of tears rolling down your cheek and drops of rolling down your leg. What? As you stand... Surrounded by the millions oh, of The Rock's fans, you now realize that The Rock is the people's champ, and that The Rock is the people's choice, and that The Rock is, without a shadow of a doubt, the, the most fans. electrifying man in sports entertainment. And this is the way it goes, Jabroni. If you smell. What the rock? Is cooking. What a SummerSlam is going to be. Sunday, August 22nd. The Target Sand Center in Minneapolis is sold out. That's a, the tickets went on sale, King. Well, I smell something, but I still think it might be Rock Six Sailor. So, as you might expect, Billy Gunn starts the promo by talking about how great his own ass is, but then the promo went in a direction I didn't expect. Because Billy claims that he took a picture of Rock's ass earlier today when Rock was coming out of the shower, and we then cut to the Titantron where we see a video of a fat woman's naked ass as she walks down the street. And I have to admit, I didn't realize you could just show someone's bare ass on cable television for about 20 straight seconds. Back in 1999, I would have assumed there was some sort of censorship restrictions there, but no, if you want to see footage of a large woman's ass, feel free to queue up this episode of Raw, because it's there in all of its glory. But as you heard, from there, The Rock proceeds to interrupt the festivities, and he cuts a promo from the Titantron, and I have to say that also caught me by surprise, because it made me think, is The Rock even in the building tonight? You would think he would show up in the arena to cut his promo, but no, this one was backstage on the Tron. Spoiler alert, though, he does briefly appear in the arena later on, but you'll have to wait a little while for that. 
But anyway, I suppose the big takeaway here is that we now know that The Rock and Billy Gunn will face each other in three weeks at SummerSlam. And, well, spoiler alert, a large woman's ass will also feature prominently into that match as well. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. Takes all kinds. And from there, we cut to footage from earlier today where D'Lo Brown is with Mark Henry. And apparently, D'Lo is trying to get Mark to have a healthier diet as he gives him a plate that's loaded with various types of vegetables. Mark asks for some meat and some sauce to go with it, but D'Lo turns him down, since that would be defeating the purpose. And it should be noted that D'Lo could probably be considered a weight loss expert in real life because he used to weigh 400 pounds prior to his tenure in the WWF. True story. Look that up. However, I should note that even though D'Lo is trying to get Mark to eat healthier, he does give him a can of Hansen's energy drink, which I assume is loaded with sugar. We covered this on the prior episode of this podcast, but yes, folks, Hansen's Energy Drink is clearly sponsoring Raw now, so enjoy seeing those bright neon green cans for a little while. And I touched on this in a prior episode as well, but at this point in time, the WWF brass is reportedly legitimately upset with Mark Henry because he's gaining too much weight, and so it appears that they're turning his real-life battles with weight loss into an on-camera storyline, which is clearly not counterproductive in any way at all. I'm sure that shaming him on television every week will certainly yield the desired outcome. Well done. But from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it's a biggie, folks. WWF Intercontinental Champion Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by Deborah, versus WWF European Champion, the aforementioned D'Lo Brown, and this is a title versus title match. Yes, you heard that correctly. The winner of this match will hold both championships. And I have to say, this one was actually really solid. We got a good six-minute match between Jeff and D'Lo, and frankly, I would have liked for this to go a little bit longer, given the high stakes involved. I know both these titles aren't exactly all that prestigious anymore, but still, they're the only singles belts in the company right now, aside from the world title, for Christ's sakes. That's got to count for something. But anyway, I'll take you right to the finish. So what you're going to hear is Jeff Jarrett attempting to clothesline D'Lo, but he ducks out of the way, which results in Jeff accidentally nailing referee Tim White and knocking him to the ground. And so, let's pick it up from there. And the Intercontinental Champion, Jeff Jarrett, from your home state of Tennessee, King, is in a lot of trouble here. Oh, no. Don't get... Oh, look at that! Oh, Jarrett, you got to think inadvertently. Knocked down the referee. Sky high. Look at that! And oh, here comes Deborah with the... With both of the Intercontinental and the European title belts. What? What? And Deborah, obviously. Well, oh, baby. Here we go. Here we go, Jared. Maybe this is the game plan. Oh, yes. Could you think? Oh, look at this. What a miracle, Bros. Are you going to be all right? It's a miracle. They can hold the puppies. Look at this. D'Lo Brown. Wait, no. D'Lo, the referee down. D'Lo Brown took the title belt and knocked out Jared. D'Lo. And there's three. D'Lo Brown has done it. How can he? D'Lo Brown. I don't know what kind of game plan Jared did or did not have. 
Uh-oh. You've been not goofy. So yes, D'Lo ducked a clothesline, which resulted in Jarrett accidentally knocking out referee Tim White, and from there, D'Lo then hit Double J with a sky-high powerbomb, and at that point, as is the custom for Jeff Jarrett matches, Deborah got herself involved. However, instead of getting up on the ring apron like she usually does, since the referee was down, Deborah actually got into the ring, and she brought the European title with her, presumably to hand to Jarrett to use. And of course, from there, she proceeded to unbutton her blouse and show off the puppies, but wisely, D'Lo didn't take the bait. Instead, D'Lo grabbed the European title and smacked Jarrett in the face with it. D'Lo made the cover, Tim White crawled over, he made the count, and ladies and gentlemen, we have a new WWF uh, Eurocontinental champion, D'Lo Brown. And to his credit, he got a huge pop from the crowd when the three count was registered. And so, this is D'Lo's first, and spoiler alert, only intercontinental title reign. And by the way, for those scoring at home, I believe this is the first time a wrestler has held two singles titles at the same time since Shawn Michaels held both the WWF title and the European title in late 1997, so certainly this is a bit of a rarity. Meanwhile, Jeff Jarrett's fifth reign with the belt ends after only two days Remember, he won the belt back from Edge at Fully Loaded on Sunday, and even though this episode of Raw aired on a Monday, it was actually taped on the following Tuesday, hence only a two-day reign. And as you heard after D'Lo won the belt, Jared and Deborah started bickering with each other until Double J eventually grabbed her by the hand and made her walk with him backstage. So it certainly appears as though there's a bit of trouble in paradise for what has been, up to this point, a very successful partnership over the past nine months. And on that note, after some commercials, we get footage from during the break where Terry Taylor catches up with Jarrett, who tells Deborah to get lost. He then says that D'Lo didn't beat him, Deborah did, and so he wants a rematch for the Intercontinental title at SummerSlam. Will D'Lo accept? I suppose we'll have to wait and see. And then, after that interview, we go right back to another commercial break, so that was certainly brief. But yes, congratulations to D'Lo Brown for being a double champion probably the highlight of his entire WWF tenure. And when we come back from break, we head into the arena where your WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin, is heading to the ring. And I have to say, it's pretty weird that we haven't seen Austin yet, and we're already this far into the show. Usually he's in the very first segment, or if not there, he makes an appearance somewhere during the first hour. But at this point, we're almost an hour and a half into Raw, and he's just now coming to the ring for the first time. Definitely not the norm for the Texas Rattlesnake. And Stone Cold has some words for his SummerSlam opponent, Triple H, but he ends up getting a rather unexpected interruption from someone else. So let's take a listen to how this all plays out. All of a sudden, I sit in the back, and all I can hear is Triple H sitting up in this commentary spot talking all the trash that he's got Stone Cold Steve Austin's number at SummerSlam. That's the biggest bunch of BS I ever heard in my life. Well, that was last. 
wing. Because you can sit at your little house and study all the little films you want to because you say that you know me like the back of your hand. Son, let me tell you this. You can show up at SummerSlam with a PhD in your back pocket when it comes to Stone Cold Steve Austin. You can be the smartest son of a bitch in the world when you get in this ring. But the bottom line is, I'm going to whip your ass, and that's all I got to say about that. Man, it's going to be a war at SummerSlam, no doubt about it. Uh-oh, what the hell is this? What do you think it is? Oh, come on. That's The Undertaker and The Big Show. And they're coming out here. <laughs> say it, JR, say it. Yes. This is about to pick up. Boy, it damn sure is right here. The 500-pound Big Show along with the most evil human being there to walk the face of the earth, The Undertaker. If I were you, Stone Cold, I would exit stage left. Who will ever forget the first blood match? We saw it fully loaded. Look at him, he's not scared of him. We all know you talk the talk. Now we're going to find out if you walk the walk. Because in one minute... If you don't give me my return title shot that I so duly deserve, we are going to stomp, what do you say, a mud hole in your ass. I get it. Whoa, oh, wait a minute. The Undertaker and the Fifth Show. <laughs> they didn't wait a minute. This is an assault. This is an assault. An unprovoked attack by the Fifth Show and the Undertaker on the rattlesnake. Well, they warned him. They gave him his opportunity. They Austin been pummeled by two monsters. So Stone Cold begins his promo by responding to what Triple H had said on Raw last week. Essentially, Hunter claimed he has Austin's number because he's been studying him for months, but Stone Cold says it won't matter once they're face-to-face in the ring. But then, instead of Triple H interrupting, that actually brings out The Undertaker, The Big Show, and Paul Bearer. And as you heard Taker say there, he wants yet another rematch for the WWF title, and before Austin can even get a chance to respond... Taker and Big Show ambush him and leave him laying after a barrage of punches, kicks, and knee strikes. So when exactly does The Undertaker want this rematch, and will Stone Cold actually give it to him? Who knows, but clearly this alliance of The Undertaker and The Big Show is a real force to be reckoned with. Credit where it's due. On the surface, this seems like a completely random pairing, more on that later by the way, but they're doing a good job so far getting them over as monster heels. And after another commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Hardcore Championship, Champion, the Big Boss Man, versus Challenger, Viscera. 
Now, obviously, both of these men were members of the corporate ministry up until tonight before Shane McMahon disbanded the group. So Jim Ross informs us on commentary that because all the members are now on their own, Viscera has taken it upon himself to challenge his former stablemate for the hardcore title. Makes sense, I'd say. So Viscera controlled things early on, but then, as is the custom for these hardcore matches, both men left the ring and started brawling through the crowd until they eventually made their way to the area near the side of the stage. And at this point, the boss man grabbed a fire extinguisher, but Viscera took it away from him before he could use it, and instead, Big Vis sprayed it in boss man's face. Call me a sucker, but I always enjoy a good old-fashioned fire extinguisher spot. I'm a man of simple tastes. And so, with Bossman temporarily blinded, Viscera then grabbed a table and put Bossman on it. He got a running start and leapt toward him, but Bossman was able to move out of the way, causing Viscera to put himself through the table. From there, Bossman then pulled out what appeared to be mace or pepper spray from his flak jacket, and he sprayed it in Viscera's eyes. Yikes. All things considered there, I think I'd probably prefer the fire extinguisher. Bossman then took out a retractable baton and hit Big Vis with a few body shots before eventually getting a running start and nailing him in the face. Viscera fell to the ground, Bossman made the cover, referee Jimmy Corderas made the count, and that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three in just a little under three and a half minutes. Your winner and still WWF Hardcore Champion, the Big Bossman. And I will say this, I don't think Bossman has a super long reign with the Hardcore title, but I wish they would book more of his matches like they did here. He has the prison guard backstory, so he can always pull out various weapons from his flak jacket like mace, pepper spray, batons, nightsticks, handcuffs, etc., and they're all legal in Hardcore matches. I think it's a pretty smart way to use a character's background to make him fit into a storyline. Just my two cents, though, since I'm still enjoying the Bossman here in 1999. And after another commercial break, Michael Cole catches up with Stone Cold Steve Austin backstage, and he says that The Undertaker can have his rematch for the WWF title tonight, and he invites the Big Show to come to the ring with him as well, because he has a can of whoop-ass with both their names on it. And so, we finally know what tonight's main event will be, an hour and 40 minutes into the show. Better late than never, I suppose. And after that interview concludes, we cut elsewhere backstage where Triple H is shown arriving to the arena. I repeat, we're an hour and 40 minutes into this show, and Hunter is just now showing up. The man is ready to put in a solid 20 minutes worth of work before clocking out for the day. Although, in fairness, it was his 30th birthday, so maybe we should commend him for showing up at all instead of spending the day partying. And from there, we then get an ad for WWF.com, which is, uh, certainly something. Picture this, if you will. We see a man bend over a table and drop his pants, as a doctor then walks up behind him and puts on a pair of rubber gloves. The voiceover then says, WWF.com, constantly probing behind the scenes to bring you inside information. I feel like there was probably a better way of advertising your website than this, but hey, what do I know? Prostate exams are edgy, bro. And when we come back, we get footage from During the Break, where China walks up to Triple H and informs him that The Undertaker will be facing Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight for the WWF title, and apparently Hunter is none too pleased about Taker jumping in front of him to get a title shot, because he then angrily shoves a Coca-Cola vending machine and throws a trash can. In a fitting metaphor, though, he completely ignored the Fruitopia vending machine, which was also standing nearby, because by 1999, pretty much everyone was ignoring Fruitopia anyway. 
If Snapple was the ultimate warrior, then Fruitopia was the renegade, and that, my friends, is a shoot-topia. <clears throat> anyway, from there we head back into the arena where it is now time for our next match, Test versus Mean Street Posse member Rodney. However, before the match even begins, when Test is making his entrance, Rodney and Joey Abs proceed to jump him from behind, throw him into the steel stairs, and then throw him into the ring post. And in case you're wondering why Pete Gass wasn't also joining in on this beating, Jim Ross informs us that Test actually broke two of Pete's ribs when he attacked him last week, hence why we only have two-thirds of the posse. But on that note, once Rodney rolls Test into the ring, Joey Abs actually leaves the ringside area, so I guess he's pretty confident that Rodney will now be able to handle Test all by himself. And by the way, referee Teddy Long clearly has no issues with this pre-match two-on-one beatdown because he immediately calls for the bell as soon as Rodney and Test enter the ring. That seems fair. But as it turns out, the posse manhandling Test didn't really help all that much because Test quickly took control and started beating the crap out of Rodney. And interestingly, while this match is going on, Jim Ross interjects with some breaking news about tonight's main event. Stone Cold versus The Undertaker will now be a no-holds-barred match, so if you were tempted to switch over to Nitro, which, let's face it, you probably weren't, now you have more incentives to stick around for the end of the show. But anywho, as for Test versus Rodney, Test basically spent the entirety of the match working over Rodney's arm and elbow, culminating with not one, but two top rope elbow drops to his right arm. And the finish was something I don't believe I've ever seen before. Test put Rodney into a hammerlock and lifted him up into the air, which caused Rodney to tap out. And then as soon as he did that, Test threw him down to the mat, so we got a submission via an elevated hammerlock, so mark that one down in your history books. Your winner of the match is Test. And as soon as the match ended, Test rolled out of the ring and grabbed a steel chair. He then put the chair on Rodney's arm, climbed to the second rope, jumped off, and yes, Test pilmonized Rodney's arm. Ouch. And then, for good measure, he pulled Rodney into one of the corners and situated his shoulder near the ring post. He then took the chair and swung it into Rodney's arm, doing even more damage to it in the process. And just as a reminder, Test is the good guy in this feud. So last week he injured Pete Gass's ribs. This week he injures Rodney's arm. Perhaps next week he'll go after Joey Abs's uh, abs? I don't know. I guess we'll have to tune in to find out. Quite the cliffhanger. And from there, we cut backstage where Michael Cole is with Triple H, and Cole makes the mistake of saying, quote, It looks like it's no longer your time, but it's The Undertaker's time. And apparently Cole didn't realize that antagonizing a jacked-up dude who's already pissed off is a bad idea, because that statement causes Triple H to push Cole down onto one of those production crates and yell out, Bullshit! Which obviously gets bleeped. Hunter then says that Taker getting a title shot instead of him is not going to happen, so that certainly adds another little bit of intrigue to tonight's main event. And so we go to a commercial break, and I have to note that if you watched this episode of Raw live back in 1999, you would have seen a whopping four commercials throughout the broadcast for a movie coming out in three weeks called Universal Soldier The Return. And the reason why that's significant is because that movie features the big screen debut of Bill Goldberg. So I'm guessing they sponsored Raw because they figured, hey, you like wrestling, so go see this movie that has a wrestler in it. Well, unfortunately, 
it doesn't end up working because Universal Soldier The Return completely tanked at the box office, so much so that it ends up being the last Jean-Claude Van Damme movie to be released in theaters until The Expendables 2, a whopping 13 years later. So not only did this movie not make Goldberg a movie star, it also killed Van Damme's career. Ouch. I've personally never seen it, but if you have, feel free to tweet me at RawAttitudePod to let me know if it was any good. I'm guessing probably not. And after one more Millennium Countdown, we go back into the arena for our next match, the Lethal Weapon Steve Blackman versus Val Venus. And before the match, we had a truly shocking moment because Steve Blackman actually got some mic time. And if you want a quick encapsulation of what tonight's episode of Raw is all about, I would say it's this. Wrestlers who never get to cut promos get to cut promos. I mean, just on this show alone, we've had the Acolytes, Edge, Test, Billy Gunn, and now Steve Blackman all get the chance to show off their mic skills with varying levels of success. And on that note, Blackman's promo here is not good. Basically, he cues up the footage from last week where he hit Ken Shamrock with his car, and then he says that it was an accident. He doesn't need a car to injure Shamrock because he can just use his hands and feet. After all, that's why they call him the lethal weapon. And of course, Blackman delivers these lines with all the conviction of someone reading the phone book, so I'm guessing we probably won't be hearing too much from him in the near future. However, Val Venus also gets some mic time before the match starts, and well, this week's sexual innuendo promo is about as late 90s as you can get. Hello, ladies. All those Buckeye ladies here tonight, oh, baby. You know something, ladies? The big Balboski and the internet have a lot in common. The internet? <laughs> you know, we're both easy to get on. <laughs> <laughs> we both come in many different languages. <laughs> the only difference is when you're through downloading the big Valboski, you may walk funny. But you will walk away virus-free. <laughs> well, that's a relief. Now, I'll probably regret asking this question, but how exactly does Val Venus come in a bunch of different languages? I would assume he would only come in English, right? I mean, it's not like he's speaking Swedish while he's having sex, is he? I mean, far be it for me to nitpick, but I dare say his logic here is a little bit flawed. Anyway, as for the match, we get about three minutes of action between these two, but as you might be able to predict, we didn't get a clean finish because Ken Shamrock ran out from backstage, and just like during the Iron Circle match at Fully Loaded, he had a metal chain wrapped around his hand. And wisely, when Shamrock slid into the ring, Blackman took that opportunity to run off through the crowd, but Shamrock caught up to him and started punching him with the chain. At that point, Jim Dotson, the security guard with the paddy cap, actually managed to restrain Shamrock for a moment, enabling Blackman to head to the backstage area, but that was only temporary until Shamrock caught up to him yet again. And when he did that, he got on top of Blackman and started punching him in the face with the metal chain until Sergeant Slaughter and some other WWF officials managed to hold him at bay while Blackman snuck away through the exit. I mean, hey, credit to Shamrock. The man plays a convincing psychopath, assuming, of course, that he's actually playing. 
As for the finish, I guess we can assume that it's either a no contest or a disqualification victory for Blackman, but I doubt you can feel like much of a winner when you take a metal chain to your face about 10 or 15 times. I don't know where this feud is headed, but knowing Vince Russo, I'm going to assume this will end up in a chain on a pole match, and honestly, I'd be totally okay with that. And from there, we go back into the ring, where it is now time for your main event, a no-holds-barred match for the WWF title, champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus challenger The Undertaker, who is accompanied by The Big Show and Paul Bearer. So yes, we're getting a match which has headlined two of the last three pay-per-views on free television with about 20 minutes worth of build. Not sure why they didn't hype this up at the beginning of the show instead, but hey, here we are. But on that note, The Undertaker enters first, but then when it's time for Stone Cold's entrance, well, things go in a bit of a different direction. This ain't happening, dead man. In case you haven't been paying attention around here, I'm the number one contender. That means if you want him, you gotta go through me. This is my time, and you're on it. Now somebody's gonna kick his ass and take his belt, but it's not gonna be you, it's gonna be me. I'm gonna kick this son of a bitch's ass. So either take it. Uh-oh. Well, look at this. There's Austin. Austin going right after Helmsley. Austin and Helmsley. And now The Undertaker. And the, the Undertaker and Austin. It's and Helmsley and the Big Show King. I, My what? God, this is chaotic. This match hasn't even started. Well, it's the match. The match. I mean, look at this. We got we got a match with The Big Show. The Big Show, Triple H, Helmsley, and Austin fighting The Undertaker. And The Undertaker got a shot in. It's supposed to be The Undertaker title match. So before Stone Cold can even get to the ramp, 
Triple H, microphone in hand, slides into the ring and confronts The Undertaker, saying that it is actually he who is next in line for a title shot, so if Taker wants Austin, he has to go through Hunter first. However, Triple H then makes the mistake of saying that he's going to kick Stone Cold's ass, so Austin runs into the ring and starts brawling with him. But from there, The Undertaker and Big Show separate the two of them, and both pairs start squaring off with each other. And then, we basically get an assembly line of run-ins. The Acolytes run into the ring and start fighting with Taker and Show. Then Kane joins the fun and also goes after the Big Show. The road dog Jesse James then runs out and starts brawling with Triple H, his former DX stablemate. And amusingly, Hardcore Holly then heads to the ring and tries to continue his one-man quest to take out the Acolytes by himself. From there, Mr. Ash joins the fray, and in what may be one of the highlights of his career, he actually starts putting the boots to Stone Cold in one of the corners, but that doesn't last long because your final man to enter this schmoz is The Rock, and he goes after his SummerSlam opponent, Billy Gunn. And by the way, this is the only appearance of The Rock in the arena on this show. Remember, we saw him arrive backstage, and then he also cut his promo on the Titantron from backstage as well. So I have to wonder if the fans felt a little let down about barely getting to see the Great One live in person. But anyway, eventually the ring finally clears until only four men are left, and we go off the air with Triple H nailing Road Dog with a pedigree right as Austin hits Mr. Ass with a Stone Cold Stunner. So a nice little parallel there, the two men who will be facing each other in the main event of SummerSlam hit their finishing moves right as the show comes to its conclusion. Now obviously, we were supposed to get a WWF title match there, and they completely bait-and-switched us by giving us a big brawl instead, but I have to say... It was a damn fun brawl. It certainly was not better than getting Austin vs. Undertaker on free TV, but if you're going to screw us out of what you promised, you might as well give us something entertaining as a substitute. Was that enough to save the show as a whole? I'll touch on that in just a bit, but for now, let's take it to... The Wrap-Up. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the hype like Dusty Rose and Rob Bassett. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now I'm rocking Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster plucking. Chickens when they plucking. Cause WWF stands for women where we fucking. The Ratings Recap So last week, Raw scored an insane 7.1 rating, capitalizing on the fallout from Fully Loaded the night before. This week, they dropped pretty significantly down to a 5.9, which is obviously still very impressive, but not the historic number they put up seven days prior. Unfortunately for WCW, though, Nitro also dropped from last week, going from a 3.4 down to a 3.1. And speaking of Nitro, on last week's episode of this podcast, I mentioned that I had a hard time finding anything noteworthy to recap from Nitro, since it was a pretty uneventful show. And this week, well, it's pretty much the exact same case. I suppose the most memorable moment was Dennis Rodman showing up, and to his credit, the fans were really into him. And on this night, he got the better of the Macho Man Randy Savage, when Savage's former valet, Mona, hit the Macho Man with a low blow, which enabled Rodman to sneak into the ring and hit Savage with a clothesline, followed by two shitty-looking elbow drops. So that's something, I guess? And hey, if you want to see the tag team of Goldberg and Sting in the main event, then that's relatively noteworthy, maybe? Other than that, I got nothing. So I guess it's pretty easy to see why their rating is dropping every week. And on that note, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. 
Now, I have to say, I was very excited to head down the road to SummerSlam now that Fully Loaded is in the books, but last week's episode of Raw was pretty lackluster, and this one was even worse. The whole show just felt very much like a placeholder episode. To be honest, the actual wrestling on the show wasn't bad, but for me, the episode just had a whole feeling of, who really cares? Stone Cold didn't show up until an hour and a half into the show, which means we didn't get an announced main event until then, and when it actually came time for that main event, we got a giant schmoz instead. An entertaining schmoz, for sure, but not exactly the Steve Austin-Undertaker world title rematch they had hyped up. Even Shane McMahon's disbanding of the corporate ministry somehow felt unimportant. He just came out and said, Well, it's over. Maybe we'll get back together someday. Maybe we won't. There was no confrontation with him and The Undertaker or Triple H or any other member of the group. I feel like most factions have much more eventful breakups, but this one is about as unmemorable as you can get. Very disappointing. So yes, I would give this episode a thumbs down and recommend that you skip it entirely because you're not really going to miss all that much. However, the silver lining is that we know that next week's episode has some great stuff on it. Jesse Ventura returns to the WWF after a nine-year absence, and the Millennium Countdown Clock will finally expire. So even though this episode of Raw was a bit of a snoozer, we know the next episode will be anything but. So, something to look forward to there. And finally, before we finish up, here are a few notes from this week's edition of the Wrestling Observer. This week, the WWF officially changed its corporate name from Titan Sports to World Wrestling Federation Entertainment. And the reason for this is because they plan on going public and trading on the stock market in the coming months, with their NASDAQ initials being WWFE. I just thought this was amusing to note since I hadn't realized that they formally changed their name to include the word entertainment this far back. I assume that came later, but no, it's been there since 1999. Good to know. And staying with the WWF, in case you're wondering why the Big Show has randomly been paired with The Undertaker over the past few weeks, apparently it's because people backstage think Paul White has a shitty work ethic, and they're hoping he can learn some things from Taker. There's a positive sign, huh? Not even six months into a ten-year contract, and Vince is already like, I'm over it, pal. Although, in fairness... There were these exact same reports after he signed Mark Henry to a 10-year contract as well, so maybe this is more of a Vince issue than a talent issue. Hand out a huge contract, immediately regret it. I'm sure he'll get over it, though. On July 30th, a benefit show called Curtis Comes Home was held for Brian Hildebrand, a former referee who went by the name of Mark Curtis in WCW. At this point in time, Hildebrand is suffering from terminal stomach cancer, and his weight is down to only 75 pounds, and unfortunately, he actually ends up passing away only about a month after this show. However, if you ever wanted to know how beloved Brian Hildebrand was, all the wrestlers actually worked the show for free, and the card for this event featured active wrestlers from the WWF, WCW, and ECW. I mean, that's a true rarity at this point in time when the bosses of all three companies give their blessing for their wrestlers to work a super card that features the opposition. Even fucking Bruno Sammartino showed up. And interestingly, Chris Jericho, who still has not yet debuted in the WWF, actually wrestled on this show and defeated Terry Taylor. Kind of a fun little time capsule there. In the brief period between his final WCW appearance and his first WWF appearance, Jericho worked Curtis Comes Home. Very cool. But here is what I think was probably the highlight of the show. D'Lo Brown was scheduled to face Al Snow, with special guest referee Mick Foley presiding over the match. 
However, Foley, who has actually been off WWF television since June, recovering from knee surgery, inserted himself into the match and put D'Lo and Al Snow into the mandible claw simultaneously. But because Foley became a participant in the match, there was no longer a referee, so Brian Hildebrand himself entered the ring and counted down D'Lo and Al Snow, giving the win to Mick Foley. Great moment there for sure. 1,500 fans attended the show, and they raised $30,000 for Hildebrand. So all in all, a lot of positivity coming from a very unfortunate situation. WCW aired a Nitro Girls pay-per-view this past week. Yes, believe it or not, this actually happened, and it was called the Nitro Girls Swimsuit Calendar Special. And if you're like me, you probably have no memory of this whatsoever, but that may be for good reason. Why? because neither TNT nor TBS allowed WCW to air commercials for the pay-per-view because the basic premise is that it involves the Nitro Girls frolicking around in bikinis, and that isn't PG enough for the Turner Networks. And because I leave no stone unturned, I did indeed find this special on YouTube, and I watched a little bit of it for you, the fans. And yes, it pretty much is the Nitro Girls being sexy in bikinis, with some banter between them interspersed throughout. And the most interesting part I could find was this little clip where Kimberly, Tigress, and Che are chatting by the pool. And, well, take a listen to what ends up being revealed. Well, I'm glad you're here, Tigress, because what I want to know is what you think you saw on that videotape that you alluded to of mine earlier. Okay. Do you remember this little videotape? Like thing? yesterday. Okay. This is what happened, y'all. We had this brand new choreographer come in whom we'd never worked with before. And in order to get him up to speed, we tried to show him a rehearsal tape of the Nitro Girls. But it was not a rehearsal tape of us at all, was it, Kim? Uh, no, I don't believe it was that day. But, you know, let me tell you this. If it did happen to be a few intimate moments between two loving, consenting adults, what's the problem? What's the big deal about that? Mm, all right, it's all okay. right. Everybody knows we're married. It's legal. Okay. Well, in some states. <laughs> so, yes, apparently Kimberly meant to provide a tape of the Nitro Girls to a new choreographer, but instead she accidentally gave that person a sex tape of her and her husband, Diamond Dallas Page. Insert your own bang joke here. And finally, in some very interesting news, the WWF has apparently reached a deal to sign the Dudley Boys, away from ECW. Jim Ross was the man who did the deal, and apparently Vince Russo had been pushing to bring them in for months. And according to Meltzer, there's a lot of skepticism backstage already as to whether or not they'll be able to cut it in the WWF, or if they're going to flame out in a way similar to another ECW tag team, which was brought in, Public Enemy, who had a brief but disastrous run with the company six months ago. And for a little more information on how this all went down, I will now play a clip for you from the 2004 DVD, The Rise and Fall of ECW, which is actually available on Peacock in all of its uncensored F-bomb glory. In this clip, you'll hear some comments from Bubba Ray Dudley, then Tommy Dreamer, and then Devon Dudley, and this will tell the tale of how the Dudleys ended up making the decision to leave ECW. Me and Devon knew that it was time to do something because we saw that the financial problems were really having an effect on the company. Myself and Devon were never owed a dime by Paul Heyman. We cannot ever turn around and say he owes us money. He doesn't. Paulie always paid me. Paulie always paid Devon. 
We never thought that we eventually one day were going to jump to WWE, but we had to start thinking about it. And when we got the phone call, we sat down with Paulie and said, listen, they called. Now, we'd like to hear from you. Paulie told, told us, I can't compete with them and I can't compete with their money. We said, we're not asking you to. Do something to keep us here. Make us understand that you appreciate the fact that we put our bodies on the line for you. Paulie thought that he could not compete with them. And that's the day I think I truly learned that ECW was the minor league and the breeding ground for WWE. Paul had instilled in everyone and in myself, you want to leave? Goodbye. The Dudleys asked for $1 raise before they came to WWE. The Dudleys did not want to come here. They asked for $1 more, and Paul said, absolutely not. And he said, I can't compete with WCW. I can't compete with WWE financially. People stay here because they want to stay here. I felt that the reason why ECW was at the level that they were at was because I helped contribute to it, along with other ECW stars at that time. And it was hard for me to actually sign the contract to come here because it was almost like I felt so guilty. It was almost like a marriage. So there you have it. Paul Heyman stuck to his guns and refused to give a $1 raise to his most over tag team. And by the way, in case you were wondering what Bubba Ray and Devon were making in ECW, Meltzer reports they each earned $600 per show, but Heyman just wouldn't take them up to 601 In Heyman's defense, though, I doubt it was as simple as, I won't give an extra dollar. I'm guessing it was more like, well, the WWF is probably going to take them at some point anyway, so I might as well just let them go now and save the extra 1200 per show since the company is losing money hand over fist. To be clear, that's just my personal speculation there, but what we do know to be true is that the Dudley boys are coming to the WWF, and, spoiler alert, I think they made the right decision. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or you could even do what Pam Just Pam did and write a lengthy review directly to rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com because I'll definitely be sure to read that as well. Or if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just rate us five stars on iTunes or Spotify without writing a review because that's helpful too. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so since this was a very slow week for professional wrestling, I will now leave you with one final clip from the Nitro Girls Swimsuit Calendar Special. And in this clip, the Nitro Girls take turns naming who they think the sexiest WCW wrestlers are, and surprisingly, we actually get a bit of a wholesome moment here because Nitro Girl Storm, a.k.a. Charmel, singles out her future husband, Booker T. And mind you, this is a whole year before they've even started dating because Booker is actually still married to his first wife at this point. I just thought that was kind of nice that she was admiring him from afar before they actually got together. But yes, if you want to know which wrestlers the Nitro Girls were into back in 1999, Feel free to take a listen, and I will catch you next time when the Millennium Countdown expires and Jesse the Body Ventura returns to the WWF for the first time in nine years. See you then.
You know, girls, one of the questions we get asked the most is, who is our favorite wrestler? Oh, yeah. Yes, we do. So I think I'm going to start with Tigress. Ooh, Ooh, the selection. It's just so large and so good to choose from. (laughs) Um, I guess if I had to pick, though, it would have to be Big Sexy. Oh, Oh, yeah. He's just so big. You just got to love him, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. How about you, Kip? Wait. We know. Okay, okay. Well, yes, everybody knows my favorite wrestler, obviously, is DDP. But um, everybody always asks me, well, him aside, him aside, who do you like? So um, I would probably have to say um, it's the icon of all wrestling, Hollywood Hogan. He is is tops Mm -hmm. by me. Well, I think you have a weakness for blondes, Kim. It's true. This is true. <laughs> Mine would have to be Macho Man. He's crazy oh. and wild. And he just brings Man. so much Macho excitement Man. to the... Yeah. Uh, and Ric like Flair. That. Ric Flair. I love Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's just... Kind of crazy like you, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's why I love him. How about you? Well, I'd have to say I like to watch Booker T. He has mm-hmm. so much energy, oh, and I love to see awesome. him dance and everything. He's a great athlete.